The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The heart sinks when Dominic Raab uses the word bespoke, bespoke resettlement scheme. That's always political for something we're scrabbling together at the back of the scenes, isn't it? You've got to choose your battlefield. And I just think Afghanistan is the wrong battlefield and history has proven that. The People's Republic of Drakeford makes Gilead look like um, Ibiza, basically. (laughs) In my church, we have people with Corbyn badges all the way through to people who are, dare I say, even to the right of you, Alison, and all shades in between. Steady on, steady on. Welcome to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast which tries to make sense of an increasingly mad world. Co-pilot Halligan is still missing on a windsurfer somewhere off Greece. Don't worry, we've got a satellite looking for a large Irishman in tiny speedos. I'm joined again by Tim Stanley, Telegraph columnist, leader, writer, author and humble servant of Bertie, the King Charles pandemic puppy, who made a guest appearance last week. Bertie is only marginally less barking and rather more house-trained than your average MP. Welcome back, Tim. Hello, Alison. <laughs> it's lovely to be here again. Lovely to have you. Well, Tim, it, it's fair to say that it's been one hell of a week on planet Earth. In Plymouth, five people were murdered in the worst mass shooting in the UK for 10 years. The killer, 22-year-old Jake Davison, was an adherent of the misogynist incel involuntary celibate culture. There were calls for Davison's crime to be reclassified as terrorism. Abroad, the old kind of terrorism was back in business. It's now almost 20 years since the Al-Qaeda attack on the Twin Towers in New York. And President Joe Biden was planning to mark the anniversary with an orderly withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan. The highly trained, magnificently equipped Afghan army would be left to keep the peace and maintain the social progress brought about by two decades of enlightened occupation. Unfortunately, the Taliban didn't get the memo. The Islamist extremists rapidly regained control of the capital, Kabul. Scenes of terror and panic at the airport invited comparisons with the fall of Saigon in 1975. At a surreal press conference, bearded men claimed that this was a new, caring, sharing Taliban, which would respect the rights of women, not to be confused with Taliban 1, which hanged a headmaster from a lamppost for the crime of educating girls. Jacinda Ardern The Prime Minister of New Zealand warned the Taliban to uphold human rights. Critics responded that Arden was not in a position to lecture anyone on human rights, having just closed down all of New Zealand because there was one man in Auckland with a positive test for COVID. Tim, help me out here. Is this a, you know, dark global humiliation for America or is it a successful bit of playing to the home crowd by Joe Biden? On the question of Joe Biden's motivations... Uh, I'm not sure if this is a populist move or if it's a genuine reflection of his long-term beliefs. Joe Biden visited Afghanistan in 2009, and that seems to have convinced him that the regime had no future. We know that he was against the surge under Barack Obama, and he was elected, pledging that he would wind the war down. Uh, Donald Trump also ran in 2020 saying he would wind the war down. And in fact, I believe he said at the beginning of 2021, he would wind it down quicker than Joe Biden did. So any criticism from Donald Trump over what Biden's done, I can't take terribly seriously. So I, I think Biden has done this because he believes what he said in his press conference, which is that America stayed too long, that the proof of the failure of the project was the inability of the Afghan army or the unwillingness to defend itself that America had no business and no will to get involved in a civil war and to fight if Afghans weren't prepared to do it themselves, and that this is what a withdrawal looks like. Where I think Biden is dead wrong is that the withdrawal did not have to look like this. It looked like this because American intelligence was wrong. They thought they had longer to get out than they really did. And so this was a catastrophic failure. But in terms of the overall policy of getting out, I suspect that is what most Americans support. And as I said, I I think it's what Biden really believes. Do you think now, I mean, you know, to outsiders, it does look, doesn't it, like an absolute catastrophe? I mean, 
jihadism has won a key battle against democracy. Um, I mean, the Taliban aren't politicians, Tim, are they? I mean, they're not. You know, they're not the nice new government. They are religious zealots. Um, and there is obviously the real danger now, surely, that Afghanistan will become a haven for like-minded extremists. You know, there's this country which I think is about the size of Texas with 60,000 fighters. And the Americans with their, you know, $800 million embassy utterly kind of just overthrown. It strikes me it's at least as humiliating as the Soviet Union withdrawal from Afghanistan in 1989, which you're much better on these things than I am, Tim, but that contributed to the end of communist rule in the Soviet Union. Could the the fall of Kabul serve as a bookend for the end of the era of US global power? Or or do you think that's that's overstating it? I don't know, because America's had this before, and it then revived. So it had this in 75 with the fall of Saigon, and then it revived. So America has a, an unusual capacity for reinvention and getting back on the saddle and riding off. As regards the Soviet Union, well, it's a chicken and egg situation. Definitely Afghanistan contributed to the fall of the Soviet Union. It definitely did. But was it the Soviet Union leaving Afghanistan? Or was it the Soviet Union going into Afghanistan? I'd say it was the former, Mm. because it was the extraordinary cost, partly because the West was bankrolling the other side, but it was also the dramatic loss of morale amongst its own people, uh, because so many mothers lost sons and so many young men were scarred by the war. So I'd argue it's when an empire becomes overextended that it's in trouble. Uh, When it leaves, that's a symptom of the overextension. But there were these absolutely surreal scenes. You know, I think you've got the historian's perspective. My reaction to it is partly head and partly heart. You know, I I can see that sort of nation building is a bit far-fetched, you know, in a country like that, which is essentially a tribal nation, isn't it? But then with my heart, you know, is thinking about these hundreds of thousands, indeed millions of Afghan girls who've learned to read in the last 20 years. I mean, just this fantastic transformative effect. I think it's 37% of Afghan girls can now read. Tim, I have a real faith in the education of the female for transforming places. I mean, if you educate a girl, you educate her children, you educate her family. If a girl's gone to school, she's likely to get married much later. She's likely to have children much later. The whole of society can be amazingly transformed, I think, by female education and Afghanistan has, you know, changed enormously. We've seen on TV the Afghan star, a singing competition. You'll remember that the Taliban last time around, they banned singing. Afghan star was a bit like X Factor. So this actually extraordinary, really, there was a lot of change in the society. And so I don't know if you saw it earlier today, there were heart-rending pictures at the airport of women, you know, putting their arms through the fencing, begging to be taken away, you know, um, by the planes, and, and and all that's completely chaotic. So, I just think it's it's kind of emotionally devastating to watch. It is. I agree with you. A part of me has has really felt like it died in the last few days watching that. I I felt no sense of humiliation for the West because I never supported the project, but you you can tell from the panic uh, that that people are in real trouble here and are facing a, an appalling future, and we've been raised in the last few years on the cult of uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Yes. This novel has taken off in a huge way. It's had a TV series, I have to say a pretty nihilistic and unpleasant TV series. And it's not what Atwood intended, but the TV series makers tried to give the impression that this is the future that could come to America because of Trump supporters. That's basically the message. Well, it's actually happening. Yes. It's happening in Afghanistan in real time, and we are seeing it. It is damnably tragic. And... uh, I just don't know what the West can do. And for everyone, everyone who says something must be done, I mean, what? Do we do we go back into a, a shooting war? I just don't know what we could do. At the start of The Handmaid's Tale, I think, as you say, the parallels are eerie, aren't they? That the, um, I think it's June is the main character and she's in her office. And then they're all, the women are all told to go home from the office. And on her way back to her house, she tries to get some money out of a cash point, but her bank account has been frozen. And we've heard of women in Kabul 
being sent home, not being allowed to do their jobs. I mean, they must be just in a kind of terrible state. I've got a quote here, Tim. This is from Brett Stevens in his 2014 book called America in Retreat. And he wrote, a world in which the leading liberal democratic nation does not assume its role as world policeman will become a world in which dictatorships contend or unite to fill the breach. And he kind of condemns Americans seeking a return to an isolationist Garden of Eden, alone and undisturbed in the world. I mean, strategically, where Afghanistan is, I mean, Boris was in the Commons saying that, that, you know, that they had kept the sort of terrorists out and that that had been an achievement of the last 20 years. But what's to stop it becoming a breeding ground for Al-Qaeda and and, and ISIS and so on? We, We need to remember that Afghanistan has been a graveyard of several empires, accepting that it is a state of life that there will be great power competition. You've got to choose your battlefield. And I just think Afghanistan is the wrong battlefield and history has proven that. How does, the obvious answer is outside finance, by the way, but how does a peasant army of uh, awful people who want to enslave half the population end up taking control of a country if it isn't innate to the culture and history of that country to, to resist a foreign presence and to resist progress and modernization. So, so what I'm saying is if this great power competition is inevitable, then we've just got to be very careful where, where you choose to fight it and how you choose to fight it. It might have been more sensible down the line to stop jobs being shipped off to China than to try to, to fight a proxy war to resist what? And I'm, I'm not even sure what Chinese interests are in Afghanistan. I'm not sure who wants to deal with the Taliban. I don't think Russia's very happy about the Taliban winning in Afghanistan. It certainly hasn't said it is. So I, I, I just, I, no one disagrees that you, you've got to be tough and sensible. You've just got to pick your battles. And this was not the right one. We got an email from a Planet Normal listener who, who said, as the sister of a serving soldier who's done several tours in Afghanistan, It's not just the soldiers and the families of those who died or injured who feel betrayed, but all of us who sat through months of anguish hoping that our relatives would make it back. I think we should have stayed the course until the job was done, which it clearly wasn't. The US forces had not taken a casualty for 18 months. It was the Afghan army bearing the brunt of the violence recently. Rome wasn't built in a day and maintaining enough of a presence there to deter the Taliban from trying to gain a foothold should have been the way forward. I mean, I find myself agreeing with that. I mean, it feels like we are in a more dangerous world now, Tim, because of Biden's short-sightedness and, you know, the absolute chaos with which it's collapsed. I mean, who's going to want to build alliances with America now um, when they see how they treat their friends? What do you think? I come back to, was this the right battlefield? If, if the debate is about security, which is a very different debate to nation building, but if the debate is about security, yes, the Taliban in Afghanistan were providing cover for al-Qaeda. That is true. But Osama bin Laden was not from Afghanistan. None of the 9-11 attackers were from Afghanistan. No, that's right. Osama bin Laden was eventually captured in Pakistan. Many of the arguments for maintaining security to use to justify invading Afghanistan could apply to military action in Pakistan, but we wouldn't consider doing that. That country is technically still friendly towards us. So, uh, and, and the Taliban have not attacked us. They, they, they've never attacked us. So I, I'm just, I, again, I just keep coming back to, you have to choose the right battlefield, and I don't believe that was the right one. How long would this project go on for? How long would our fort remain there? How long was this supposed to remain our outpost? At what point could we say victory? We could have left and had the same outcome 10 years ago. I suspect we could leave in 10 years and have the same outcome because the army ultimately was unprepared or unable to defend the status quo. But do you think it could have been that the withdrawal could have been done more skillfully? I mean, oh, yes. there were all sorts of things about, oh, we've got sort of 90 days clear and they barely, they barely had nine hours before. I mean, it does, it does seem amazing. I mean, that, you know, those pictures of the, actually, you said to me, you rather like their headgear, the, the, the Taliban. What's it, what's it called? The, it's, not a, it's not a turban, is it? It's called something very strange, but they wear on the head. So the idea that these men in basically in flip-flops and open-back jeeps could 
sweep, you know, all that American power over the way. So what do you think domestically, Tim? If you think about Boris as having a really tough time in the Commons, we've got lots of Conservatives, Tom Tugendhat, Rory Stewart, even Theresa May was having a go. You know, she's become kind of a quite a moral force. So, so what do you think domestically? Do you think there'll be some implications for that? Yeah, the main implication will be immigration. Mm. It'll be the question of the numbers of people we take and how they are vetted. Because th- there is a moral imperative to take people who helped Britain or who, are, who, have a, who have a legitimate claim to asylum. But you've also got to be careful that you're not taking criminals and you're not taking people who will be a security threat. So immigration is going to be a major issue. But in terms of the effects of the, of the humiliation of the, of the withdrawal, if history is the guide, Sometimes a foreign policy humiliation has a political impact. It did say with the Iranian hostage crisis in 1980 and Jimmy Carter. Mm. But if you go back to Saigon in 1975, the striking thing is that it changed nothing domestically. And in the 1976 election a year after, Vietnam was hardly mentioned at all because the attitude of most Americans was they were glad to be out. And in fact, there was a significant amount of resistance even to taking Vietnamese refugees. So... uh, Just because the political and journalistic elite, if you like, establishment, if you want to call them that, uh, are saying this this is a a game-changing humiliation, I don't necessarily think that voters will feel the same way. But we do have the extraordinary spectacle, don't we, of these boatloads of would-be immigrants landing at Dover and Ramsgate every day, including various Afghans who are then being sort of, you know, punted out and told to go away. Right. I'm just saying many commentators, particularly on the right, are scathing about those boats. They would say because they should come through legitimate means, but they tend to be very critical of that kind of asylum. And suddenly they're all in favor of asylum seekers from Afghanistan. Well, if you follow the trajectory in the graph of asylum applications to Britain, it goes up and down according to where we've invaded. A significant numbers uh, of asylum seekers have come from Iraq, from Afghanistan, but also uh, big contributor has come from Iran, which we've never gone to war with, but which again, most conservative commentators would say, I hate Iran and I would help anyone who wants to flee it to come here. And yet when an Iranian asylum seeker turns up, often conservatives change their tune. So I'll be interested in a few months time to see if conservatives are as welcoming to Afghan refugees as I think they should be, but as they are being right now. The heart sinks when Dominic Raab uses the word bespoke, bespoke resettlement scheme. That's net, that's always a that's always political force, something we're scrabbling together at the back of the scenes, isn't it? So as far as I can work out, Tim, there are going to be 20,000 Afghans, is that right, will be given the right to move to the UK. That's the number that's been given, yeah. That's the one that's been given and that there are a further 10,000 who are under the existing programme for interpreters and staff and so on. And I guess there's, you know, there's just this huge worry about how on earth they're even going to get them out because, you know, trying to get to the airport is astonishing. But then Boris is then basically saying, oh, yes, well, they'll be able to come in a few months. So, you know, where are they supposed to go in the meantime? They're not going to be able to kind of go off on go off on holiday. I mean, something that strikes me, and it always strikes me when I watch those boats coming across the channel as well, is it's mainly healthy young men, isn't it? And I guess my concern would be, are we going to have young men pushing themselves to the front of the queue? Or will Pretty Patel's promise that there are going to be women and children given um, priority. I mean, I would really like to see that because I think that always upsets people. This idea that, you know, they were on the planes out. We saw that extraordinary picture, didn't we, of the of the huge jet, which is supposed to carry 150 people, absolutely packed to the gunnels with about 800 people. Um, and most of them, I think, were were men. So I wonder if they will manage it, because I think it will be a lot of the women, particularly in Kabul, you know, we've seen, I think it was back in January, Tim, that there were, you know, two women judges were assassinated by the Taliban. So it's really ironically and and, and bitterly, isn't it? It's, It's women who have benefited from this past 20 years who now stand to pay the highest price. Have we got any good news this week, Tim Stanley? I, I'm just I'm just going to say for the benefit of Planet Normal listeners, I know it's all incredibly grim, but I saw my mum this week, Tim, on the weekend for the first time since Christmas 2019. Wonderful. And yes, it was wonderful. And how was it? 
Well, I got very emotional on the train as soon as we, you know, the, the train from Paddington got into Cardiff. I always feel quite emotional going into wet South Wales anyway, land of my father's and all that. But I hadn't really been able to go to see her because the People's Republic of Drakeford makes Gilead look like Ibiza, basically. You know, and it's very, <laughs> very, um, it's been, shall we say, it's been strict in its observance of the COVID rules. So it's been quite difficult to actually get in there and, and the rules were different from England's for a long time. I think that's probably something that, that people haven't been as aware of, that England's rules have been much more relaxed. But yeah, it was lovely, lovely to see my mum standing on the station platform. And uh, it's been a long time, you know. I mean, and did you give her a big hug? We're Welsh, Tim, so we don't we don't we don't go in for vast right. displays of physical affection. But right, no, but there was no it, social distancing. You didn't stand two meters apart. No, there was no social distancing, and we had you know fish and chips from Burryport Harbour, which which was lovely. But yeah, I mean, it it was in a came in a very difficult week, and it does make you realise that obviously we'd texted and emailed and all the things that you know all the ways that people have kept in contact during the pandemic but there's just no substitute for breathing the same air as your parent and yeah I'd missed her dreadfully. I'm Sophia Yan, the Telegraph's China correspondent. And in our latest documentary podcast, I take you inside a story of uprising, of dark twists and turns, and of a people's fight for freedom. I forewarn those radicals not to attempt to violate this law because the consequences are very serious. You never know who will report you, who will denounce you. Such a beautiful and wonderful city being dismantled by this terrible regime just for their obsession on power, total control. Our new series tells you how one law turned Hong Kong upside down. Over four episodes, you'll hear from the activists and politicians who fled their own country, the young people finding their own quiet ways to keep resisting, and the parents worried for their children's future. It's a tale that tells us as much about China as it does Hong Kong. Search Hong Kong Silence to wherever you're listening to this. Actually, Tim, it's a brilliant week to have you here because we're moving now to our Planet Normal guest and from one internecine conflict in Kabul to within the Church of England, which is religion, I know, is one of your special subjects. And you will know, as will readers of the Telegraph comment pages, that there is a big tussle going on in the Church of England could even be seen as a battle for the soul of the church between the bishops and the managers on one side and the parishes and ordinary churchgoers on the other. Tim, I don't know what you think. I thought this story had a wider significance that would be really interesting to Planet Normal listeners. So this week, onto the rocket, I invited Giles Fraser. Giles is the priest in charge of St Mary's Newington in South London. He's a hugely charismatic and a, and a controversial figure. Listeners may know him from the role he played in the Occupy London movement in 2011, when Giles defended people who were, he said, exercising their right to protest peacefully outside St Paul's Cathedral. He did end up leaving his post there, subsequently spiralled into depression, drinking too much while his family life fell apart, tragically. And he does talk magnificently about that period in his memoir, Chosen, Lost and Found Between Christianity and Judaism. Giles, it has to be said, is rather unusual for a C of E vicar, a frequent critic of the left. He supported Brexit and even confesses to having voted Conservative in 2019. May God forgive him. Recently, Giles has been very powerful and vocal in the Save the Parish campaign. I began by asking Charles Fraser to explain to Planet Normal listeners what the row is all about. Oh, no, I'm sure I couldn't do that. It's way too long and complicated. <laughs> look, I'll have a go. Have a go. And look, first of all, I mean, I suppose it starts with the thing that you first said, introducing me, which is you may not go to church, but... And the truth of the matter is that less and less people go to church, and that is always going to put pressure on an institution. And, um, you know, we do have to get better in attracting more people to come to church. However, these sorts of pressures do reveal sometimes the problems are in the solutions to that rather than the problem itself. 
And one of the solutions that our lords and masters have come up with is to sort of suck money in a way from the parish system mm. and to put its faith in new initiatives. There's always a new initiative coming from head office. It's always a centralised initiative. And it's an initiative to put money in a number of churches that are sort of tend to have some great new idea about how a parish should be. They're always given whizzy new names like fresh expressions or things <laughs> like this. The old boring parish of the Church of England is actually one of the most important institutions in this country. And it is the very epitome of localism. It's, it's where... I guess God Almighty, the Eternal, meets the absolutely every day. And the two things come into contact with each other. And we all know our parish church. Most of us, as you rightly say, even if you don't go to church, most of us still probably love our parish church and think it has a, an important mm. part to play in defining the nature of place and where we live and roots us. You know, that this building has been here, prayed in, polished by generations and generations of people for hundreds of years and the parish church is being sucked of money it's having less and less clergy and it's feeling incredibly neglected what you're saying Giles is that this isn't by accident this is deliberate so writing the daily telegraph on saturday george carey who's the former archbishop of canterbury said the current trajectory of our church is a huge mistake and the leadership is out of touch with ordinary churchgoers it is time to rally the troops i mean those were very strong words giles they were strong words i think they're justified as well it certainly feels like that as a, as a parish priest it feels like if you're doing the sort of dull old work of a parish priest in the locality and you, you don't have 800 young people with guitars if you're not that they're not always terribly interested in you and this is part of the problem you know I think they've been spooked by the fact that young people are not coming to church so they've tried to invent reinvent this institution with a sort of like new improved Church of England focused upon the young and the trendy and, and by the way, I think that's OK for young people. But the problem is all of the resources seem to be being poured into that. And those of us who pad around in our parishes or mm. church wardens who have been looking after their place for many, many years faithfully and people who are not getting a vicar in, in the countryside, these people are beginning to just get angry about it, get angry that the parish is not being respected. And the other thing to say, Alison, is the parish used to be the sort of central organisational unit of the church. It was where the power was, really. Steadily through general synod legislation, the power has been sucked out of the parish, the money's been sucked out of the parish and centralised in the diocese. And this has created a very different feel to the Church of England. Can we just spell this out clearly for listeners? So, each parish contributes something which is usually called the parish share to their, their diocese. Yeah. can be quite a large sum that they've collected or done fundraising for. And in theory, that should pay for the parish's vicar, his salary, his training, his housing. But increasingly, what you're saying is that those resources, which have been you know, hard-won savings by ordinary people in the church, are being siphoned away from the parishes and used to pay for high-salaried bishops and proliferating managers while they cut the number of vicars and are starving the front line of the resources. I mean, there, there, is, there are some infamous examples, Giles. I actually saw one diocese was advertising for a head of creation, a post which most of us thought had been rather admirably filled for the past 2,000 <laughs> years. Well, longer than longer, that. Longer, longer than that, yes, exactly. But is that what's happening, that the resources, the centre, this sort of um, Byzantine managerial centre is taking resources unto itself. Is that fair? It's, it's nearly fair. So the first thing to say about the parish share system is the parish share system is in its purest form a good idea. I have served in one of the wealthiest parishes. I was the vicar in Putney. And what you do in a very wealthy parish like that is it's quite right and proper that some of the money that you can raise in the parish goes to support parishes which, like the one I'm serving in now, 
is actually probably too poor to support the cost of its own clergy. Mm. So there is a certain amount of redistribution. So you put it into a pot and then you redistribute. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The problem is when that central pot starts to be used too much to fund jobs that are actually sort of jobs in central church house, that are not parish jobs, but that are jobs with grandiose titles, as you rightly say, and suddenly this sort of burgeoning centralisation is what's being funded by this parish share system. So I think the parish share has been, uh, is an important thing, but it's been abused because the diocese can use it as a honeypot for their next project. That, that's what's happened. And that's the problem. Charles, I've really admired the, the very storming uh, pieces you've been writing about this new growth strategy from head office, which is called Myriad Greek for 10,000. And this idea is to plant 10,000 new lay churches in people's sitting rooms, services not even being conducted by someone like you with any theological training. And you're basically saying that people like you, who you describe as those of us who are deemed to be infertile or firing evangelistic blanks, are being slated for the knacker's yard. Now, Stephen Cottrell, the Archbishop of York, has denied this, but it does really look like the church's senior leaders effectively want to do away with the parish system. Is that is that right? It certainly feels that way. They do deny it all the time. I mean, the, one of the things that sparked off all of this is a very senior clergyman in the Church of England gave this speech and he said... Uh, Parish priests like me and the training that we theological training that we have to receive and the building, the church building that we have are, and he used this phrase, limiting factors. We are the limiting factors in the, as it were, evangel re-evangelisation of England. Oh, and by the way, he didn't just say that. He also said about the people, faithful people who turn up every Sunday or even you know, once a month or even Christmas and Easter. He, he described these people as passengers. If you're not out there trying to sort of pull your neighbour in or your neighbour's teenagers, ideally, to church, you are a passenger. Now, I have to say that the level of offence that was taken so, by so this, offensive. especially so after offensive. COVID, which has been really, really hard to be a, a parish priest during this this whole COVID time, you know, being told we're not allowed to go in our churches and all of that sort of stuff that came from head office. And then the idea is, so what is this new church? You, you tell me what you're going to do, Mr Myriad. And the answer is 10,000 churches, they may not need buildings, they may just be websites. You know, this, this number is, is in a way sort of fantasy number, 10,000. I mean... Goodness gracious me, it's, a, it's just utterly pie in the sky and ridiculous. The other reason it's so offensive is because it's... Why are they doing it? Because it's cheap. You know, sort of like you meet in somebody's living room. You have 20 or 30 people, the idea is, that might meet in someone's living room and, and you call that a church. I mean... I don't have a living room that you can get 20 and 30 people. No. I mean, who is that? I mean, that's... Most people the, don't, yeah. It's the squire, isn't it? Or, I mean, it returns yes, to... Yes, it a, is. That's, that's what that would mean. But, I mean, I think what happened is, over lockdown, when lots of churches had to go on to Zoom because people weren't allowed into their churches, they spied a way of doing church that was cheaper. Maybe something like this could work. Some sort of internet church... And, you know, you don't need to worry about the roof. You don't need to worry about um, all the sorts of things that, you know, bother us vicars all the time. That That's the sort of corrosive bit where parishes are suddenly, oh, no, you're old school, you're old fashioned. This is this is the future. This is the, this is where we need to go. And it's just so demoralising for us. So demoralising. I've got a document here that a reader sent me. It's a church consultation document and it's number GS2222, page 27. And it shows that the diocese are planning to close up to 356 churches within two to five years. Well, I do think our leadership is committed to parishes, but I just think they're going absolutely the wrong way about it. I mean, how it feels on the ground is it doesn't feel like we've been well supported. There may well need to be some some small closures. But by the way, the church commissioners who hold our money have been doing 
fabulously well over the last few few years. They've been making millions and millions yes. and millions of pounds. That's right. Yes. Um, 800 million in the last few years is a figure I've heard. When they plough money back in, the church commissioners are not allowed to mm. plough it back into the Paris system. They can only plough it into these sorts of crazy initiatives. Not, not all of them are crazy, that's not fair to say. Some of them are quite worthwhile, but some of them really feel like they're disconnected from just the ordinary and the everyday. The ordinary and the everyday is disparaged, and that's part of the problem. It's almost as if... The way out of the sort of bind we find ourselves in with less and less people coming to church is to try and do some sort of trick to get people in. And and there isn't any shortcut. It's actually about people coming to faith. And for some people, students, that can happen quite quickly. For other people, it takes a lot of time and trust. And, you know, we're English. We we have a funny relationship to religion uh, as well, Alison. We sort of, there are people who are sort of, I don't know, semi-believers, nonetheless feel it's very, very important and that the presence of Christianity on these islands is actually something terribly important to our culture. You know, some Christians disparage that attitude. I, I think it, it often shows quite a loyalty to, um, to the church, despite the fact that people have their theological doubts. I agree with you. I, I, I remember when I was a regular churchgoer that there would be a lot of sort of comment about, you know, people coming in for the sort of Christmas Eve service. And I used to think that, you know, that great Philip Larkin line, Giles, about, you know, people will always be surprising within themselves the desire for something serious and meaning. And I think a lot of people, normal people, would be very shocked to think that the churches which they count on as being there for births, for marriages, for death, have a talismanic force, even if you're not in them the whole time. I think people be very shocked to think that what a lot of Telegraph readers are telling us, that they feel their church is being allowed to wither on the vine. But that, but that poem you talk about, sorry, just to interrupt you, because it's such a beautiful poem. Feel about that uh, poem, Church Going by Philip Larkin, is he goes into an empty church and he wonders what it's for. And yet he surprises himself with the spirituality of this place, how beautiful it is, how it speaks to him of something beyond himself and so forth. When we, when we talk about these buildings as if they're just stones, they're not just stones. They stand there and they represent the sort of historic presence of faith in this country for generations and for many cases for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we would miss them greatly when they're gone, not because they're beautiful buildings, but they form, even for atheists like Larkin, an important spiritual part of our nation. So Save the Parish, this great campaign group of which you're a, a leading figure, is leading the fight back against the, you know, this kind of unwinding of the parishes. I know that last week many of you gathered in, in one of my favourite churches, Giles, which is St Bartholomew's the Great in Smithfield. It's an extraordinary church. I highly recommend that any listeners who visit London should go there. But Alison Milbank, who's the canon theologian from Southwark Cathedral, said to everybody at the Save the Parish meeting, the Church of England has totally capitulated to market values and managerialism there's been a tendency to view the parish like some inherited embarrassing knick-knack from a great aunt that, that you wish were in the attic what is save the parish telling people to do now the first thing to say is the church can't ever survive in these islands if no one ever comes to it i do want to say to people do visit your church and have a think about what it means to you and, and and be a part of it. Because, you know, if nobody goes, there isn't a future for the churches in this country. So that's the one thing we need to do. But that sort of evangelism, for me, works best through our local parish churches. And they've always been the most effective way of communicating with people. So I think we need to reverse this centralisation. We really need to have a sense that the parish is the basic unit of governance and mission in this country as it always has been. And, and that's a very important thing. We don't want a Zoom church. We don't want a church that's sort of, you know, 800 people in 10 miles away. In a way, it's a cry from the heart, organising people like the people that have been writing to your newspaper to say come on we need to get together and defend what we think is important here we want to be better resourced with help us with our resourcing we want the center to be squeezed quite a lot more we really need to return to the parishes 
It is, imp- it is important. And I think our children, our grandchildren, their children, they may say, what happened to those places, Grandma? I don't want it to die on our watch because I think that would be shameful. Now, I do know that Save the Parish is asking people to stand for General Synod on a Save the Parish ticket. And the closing date for nominations is the 8th of September. So anyone who is a, a churchgoer might, might, might consider doing that to just, to just to make it more prominent. But I'm going to read you this, Giles, from a Telegraph reader who was commenting under George Carey's piece. Quite critical, really. Lord Carey was the last Archbishop of Canterbury to be a Christian who cared for the C of E. Since then, we have had a well-meaning but hopeless druid and a woke apologist who takes three months off at a time of continuing national crisis by closing down services, hymn singing, and particularly access for prayer during the lockdown. Justin Welby let down the church and the country. Should the churches have stayed open, Giles Fraser? So I'm going to take issue with the characterisation of both archbishops. Rowan Williams is a man that I love mm. deeply and he was a great archbishop of Canterbury. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's not terribly Christian to be throwing around, you know, no. disparities. Nonetheless, the church had a very bad lockdown. Yes, it the did. The church really did have a very bad lockdown. I mean, the idea that the archbishop of Canterbury celebrated the Eucharist from his kitchen on Easter Day last year when he had a perfectly good, beautiful chapel in Lambeth Palace there. It was seen as symbolic for many of us of, uh, we don't need those old stones. Those old stones are holding us back. You know, we could use this technology to connect with each other without the need for any of that. You know, those embarrassing old knickknacks that Alison Milbank talked about. So I think that was a mistake. It was a real mistake to tell us that we weren't allowed to go into our churches. And... Mm. um, and can I just can I just say you as a member of the clergy, you were not even supposed to go in for private prayer. Is that correct? It is. I took no notice of that, Alison. Absolutely no notice whatsoever. I mean, I think it was shocking the idea that we were told not to go in. And we were, by the way, we were allowed to go in to check for health and safety purposes, for insurance purposes. That was OK. But not to go in and celebrate the Eucharist. No, that was just nonsense. But nonetheless, we did do quite a lot of stuff on Zoom, even though I am dispositionally against the idea of this sort of technology. It did have a positive side to it. And the positive side is that there are a number of people who are housebound and they were able to access our church in a way that they hadn't before. And we've now got a whole new congregation who are joining us from literally all over the world. So, you know, there is an upside, but you can't do pastoral care over Zoom. It, It doesn't work for church. Church is a bodily incarnational thing and you need to be there. Just can I ask you something else? I, I was delighted to learn that you supported Brexit. I also read, I don't know if this is entirely true, that there was only one bishop in the whole Church of England who had voted leave while a majority of uh, churchgoers backed Brexit. Does it concern you that there is a, a, a gap between a liberal left church hierarchy and many of the people who actually go to church? It's a real problem. It's absolutely a real problem. I mean, Alison, I have to put my hands up here. I come from quite a hard left background. And, I know, uh, I and know. When, but we've, had, I used... we've had you on anyway, so it's, you know, it's fine. <laughs> Thank you very much. But I, but I... We, welcome, we welcome all sorts on Planet Normal. <laughs> Sinners who've, who've seen the light. <laughs> but I think Brexit was a real watershed for me. I've been terribly opinionated politically, and I, I still will be. But the one thing I love about my church is that in my church, people with Corbyn badges all the way through to people who are, dare I say, even to the right of you, Alison, <laughs> and all shades in between. Steady on, but... steady on Giles, steady on. <laughs> but I mean, you know, black, white, yeah. straight, gay, all, all conditions of people all, and all political conditions. And I, that's how a church should be. It's absolutely how a church should be. And I celebrate and love my church for being that. And the idea that you make one particular group of people feel unwelcome in there who've got a particular political perspective, especially, by the way, given the fact they probably make up the majority of churchgoers, is just crazy. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's wrong and it's crazy. Well, I have to say, Tim, that if anyone can persuade me to become a regular churchgoer, I think it would be the um, the gale force enthusiasm of Giles Fraser, he, he, he's quite something, isn't he? And, and he's making a very important point. 
He is. He's astonishing. He's an old friend of mine, and we work together on the moral maze. Uh, one of the interesting things about him is that journey he's made from left to, well, I don't know if right is the right word, but he, he's certainly pro-Brexit, anti-establishment. And I think he feels that liberal left have given up on many of the, the, the values that used to guide the left, in particular community, history, identity, that sort of thing. And I think that you've got to put all these different things together. The issue of, uh, of the you know, so-called war on parishes, the closing down of churches during the coronavirus, mm. and also the obvious political direction of the Anglican hierarchy. I don't think these things are separate. I think they're all part of the same picture. I think the church is run by people with a particular vision of church and society, which leads to them doing these sorts of things. Um, I, I think there's also a little bit of theology in there, which I, I don't think Giles would be inclined to admit to. But I, I think it's not just that the church is run by liberals. I think it's run by people who are liberal evangelicals. And, and Giles represents a, a more Anglo-Catholic tradition which has a different relationship to the church and to the Eucharist. And I think that's a significant part of this. Um, of course, the hierarchy would say, uh, you know, we're, we're not anti the traditions of the church. On the contrary, we, we want to return to the early church, which was, you know, before it had church buildings. And, and it was all about ev evangelization and the transformation of the Roman Empire. And, and, and that was done without bishops and, and, and without the Church of England. And they've got a point. They've got a point. But what Giles, I, I feel, is trying to say is you've got to conserve what the church has built because you need a structure not just a, a structure, both uh, physically and emotionally, that is there for people when they need it. And I think that is what the hierarchy is turning against. Well, as someone who's a sort of high days and holidays churchgoer, you know, I'm, I'm your Christmas Eve person belting out Silent Night. But I think I was quite shocked, Tim, to realise that these things that we take for granted in our community, you know, the the place that presides over births, marriages and deaths, you know, we may suddenly turn around and it will be a carpet warehouse or a luxury flat. And, you know, it's even spurred me into thinking how dreadful that would be and, and how much we'd lose. But isn't what Jar talking about as well is that we see increasingly, don't we see British institutions being run by people who don't very much like those institutions? Yes. And there's, there's a great deal of irony in that. I think one thing they don't get is the novelty of permanence, by which I mean that for many people, the appeal of church is that it's almost always the same when they go to it. That even if you go once a year, you go at Christmas and you expect the same thing and you get more or less the same thing. Now, of course, if you're the vicar doing that day in, day out, that's boring. But if you're the parishioner who turns up once in a blue moon, that's what I call the novelty of permanence. It's actually novel that here is this thing that hasn't changed. Mm. And I think there's, there's a lot of an understanding of that within the hierarchy. But there is also this phenomenon, which you get in one institution after another, of people taking over it who almost seem determined to shut it down. And I think it's a, it's a Western disease. Nietzsche called it the last man syndrome, where you, you, you just give up. And that you actually start to fetishize the death of a way of life and you fantasize about being the last man standing. So you get people who take great pleasure in being in the institution and enjoying all the riches of that institution, but they're constantly preaching against it. And you find it in universities, you find it in politics, in political parties, people who will become conservatives and conservative ministers. And they don't like the conservative party <laughs> and they don't like any of the people in it. They actually uh, rate how well they're doing by how much they're disliked. It's a cult of deconstruction and it's a Western phenomenon. It's definitely not what the Taliban's all about. <laughs> You've got, well, you know, you, you, you think at least the Taliban seem to be quite keen on their beliefs and culture, <laughs> unlike our own sort of absolutely hopeless sort of soppy, you know, abdication of things that people should care. I, I actually think that what Giles Fraser's pinpointing is that people, you know, in the pews, people he's meeting in his daily life, they care about these things. It's the people who are supposedly leading them who are, I do think, the terrible own goal of the church not being open during the pandemic. Yes. Anyway. Yeah, no, and just to say on that point, no, Alison, that's really important because the message that sent was you don't need us. 
And there have been there have been plagues in the past, and there's always been a debate about whether churches should be open or shut, and sometimes they've been shut. But it was the speed and the willingness by which it was done, and the message it was sent was this is not necessary. What's necessary is your health and your person. And don't get me wrong, those are very important. But what's not necessary is the care of your soul and this building. You're right. That is an absolute institutional own goal. It'd be like the police saying, you don't really need us to keep, keep law and order. Mm, absolutely. I know by happy coincidence, there's a book by somebody called Tim Stanley on this very topic coming yes. out in October. It's called Whatever Happened to Tradition. Two sentences about why planet normalists should be stampeding to the bookshop to pick up this masterpiece. Because this explains everything that's gone wrong and how to fix it. <laughs> so to, in short, I argue that the West does have a tradition, but it's an anti-tradition tradition that we are almost uh, genetically programmed to keep tearing things down. We build things up and then we deconstruct them. And what I argue with this book is that uh, I'm not arguing for any one particular tradition. You'll find Buddhism in here, Islam in here, Christianity. What I'm saying is that a traditional mindset, one which values and tries to preserve the past and pass it on, I think is not only a beautiful but very useful because it helps us keep us grounded when there's big changes going on. And it means we can progress without losing a sense of ourselves. Well, I'm expecting a signed copy at the very least. <laughs> Liam and I may actually have to get you back onto Planet Normal, Tim Stanley, to talk about your book. Please do. But anyway, now onto our listener emails, a selection of the wonderful, often very funny, sometimes heartbreaking messages you send each week to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We really love hearing from you. This is from Fiona. My children all had their childhood vaccinations, but I have no intention of letting them have this COVID vaccine. For those children who will have it, I think the JCVI scientists and vaccine trial researchers should be held totally and personally accountable for their data and recommendations. Millions of children are about to be pressured into having an experimental vaccine for a disease most will not even be sick with at the tail end of a pandemic and with no idea of the long-term risks. I've noticed in interviews that some of the scientists seem to be qualifying their support for vaccinating kids a little as if that will in some way mitigate their responsibility later on. But the issue is binary. Either the kids are vaccinated or they're not. They can't be half vaccinated and the vaccine can't be removed from their system five years down the line if problems arise. This email is very interesting. It's from Victoria. And Victoria says, quote, I have joined the campaign group Save the Parish. Save us from the diocese, more like. In our diocese, there is a recruitment freeze on clergy. Surprise, surprise, this doesn't appear to apply to clerical and managerial staff in the diocesan offices, with increases in parish share to pay for them all. You may like to know that these diocesan posts include discipleship team leader, everyday faith coordinator, healing advisor, <laughs> spiritual direction advisor, counselling and well-being, lead giving and funding advisor, together with three clergy in their, quote, pioneering an evangelism team, which includes a, quote, faith and sharing enabler. The list of these non-jobs appears to be endless while parishes go without priests. However, I don't really know what we can do when we are expected to put up and shut up. Back in 1820, the radical journalist John Wade published the Black Book, in which he observed that bishops, archdeacons, deans, canons, and others were, quote, clerical sinecurists filled with the Holy Ghost for no other purpose but to enjoy the loaves and fishes of the church. So what's changed? I just hope that Charles Fraser and his colleagues can make the authorities see sense before the churches all close, the congregations leave, and the diocesan bureaucrats disappear into a black hole of their own making. As Corporal Jones once said, they don't like it up em, sir. Well, some of their graces in their posh palaces might like to know that the peasants are revolting and some of us are polishing our pitchforks. Wow, fighting talk, Victoria. This is from Kirsten. I am an NHS consultant and share many of Planet Normal's thoughts on the mess we're in. I was driven this week to email you with regard to the nonsense with the travel fiasco and the forced vaccination of the young, forced in quote unquote. 
Like many 18-year-olds, my middle son has, after a year of restrictions and limited education, spent one week on a party island in Greece with six of his friends, my idea of hell. Several of them had COVID in June, July, so they could not receive the vaccine. You need to be clear for one month after infection. They all had to pay for tests on day two, day eight and day five for early release to be able to go and collect A-level results last Tuesday with the pre-travel test that has cost more than the holiday itself. Why, when the boys have higher levels of immunity than that conferred by a vaccine, are they having to quarantine? Other countries have an immunity passport, which offers the same privileges for those with evidence of affection in the last six months as those who've been vaccinated. Why, too, if they have to quarantine in any case, are they being made to pay a minimum of £75 per test? Why has the government not thought about this and why are they allowing this to continue? It is totally immoral for anyone to be making money from this pandemic. Every day, teenagers in quarantine like mine are being hounded by the test and trace people, including early morning visits, regurgitating the same old questions about understanding the rules. I've spread the word about your great podcast far and wide. And please do continue with everything you're doing to save us and more importantly, future generations from totalitarian madness. Well, I'm not sure we'd do that, Kirsten, but we're doing our best. Tim. (laughs) It's a big ask. Email here from John, and there's quite a few capital letters in this. Uh, He says, (laughs) quote, I am in a state of despair, totally open borders. Why? Why must we have millions from Hong Kong? Why must we allow passportless Afghans into the country? We're not even allowed to travel. Will they be jabbed? We, together with the Americans, have occupied Afghanistan for 20 years. We need to leave. We condemn the Russians for their occupation of the country. Why is it okay for us to occupy this country and not them? What are we even doing there? What are we trying to achieve? The occupation has lasted for 20 years. How much longer do we need to achieve victory over the people of Afghanistan of whom we disapprove? We have no rights there. We are not threatened by Afghanistan. When are we going to learn this lesson? I view this occupation with similar disdain to the US Army's occupation of Vietnam. This has nothing to do with Biden. It is refreshing to see the US do the right thing for a change. Trump wanted to do it as he also rightly wanted to leave Syria but was prevented from doing so. Does our military establishment intend to occupy the country forever? Why do we need to defeat the Taliban? We are not a global police force. Leave them alone. Our occupation has only exacerbated this poor country's problems. The sooner we leave, the better. Well, as you said, Tim, I think there'll be quite a lot of people who do actually agree with John. Won't hear many of them on the mainstream media. This is from Chris. Very sad, this email. My brother and I are both dentists. He sent these two texts to me today. Number one, here's a stat. People I know that died of COVID, zero. People I know that were seriously ill with COVID, zero. 22-year-olds I know that have committed suicide with COVID-related depression, two. Both were bright kids with a great future. Both had their university effed up. I don't need to say anything else, do I? Well, my beloved son, Chris, is 22 this very week, so my heart goes out. I can't tell you how much I feel for them and for their parents. Tim, something to finish with, something a bit brighter. Finally, from Eddie on Twitter, he says, quote, Look, the West had a good run, but people got fat, apathetic, complacent, (laughs) entitled and anaesthetised by tech, abandoned the values that created their societies, demonised those who highlighted their problems, stuck their fingers in their ears and ignored the bleeding obvious. It's done. I don't know if that's a positive (laughs) note or not. (laughs) Sounds like something that Tim Stanley might even write a book about. (laughs) And on that cheery note from both of us, it's done. The West is finished. Never mind. Tim will be writing an excellent best-selling book about it. That's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave the sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of righteous views. Tim, I think it's my turn to pick the winner of one of our highly sought-after Planet Normal mugs. It's going to be really difficult, I think, to choose the email of the week. So if Theodora Leloudis, our marvellous editor, will allow Allow me. I'm going to give two mugs this week, controversially. One to Victoria for her marvellous email about the Save the Parish campaign and to Kristen for writing so marvellously about the travel travails of her teenage son. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. 
And every Thursday morning, Telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the Telegraph website, you lucky things. Find the article labelled Planet Normal, leave a comment beneath it, and I'll reply from 11am to 12 noon. I'd love to chat to you. Co-pilot Halligan should be back next week if we've managed to fish him out of the sea. So as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard and Elliot Lampett and our editor Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.